Research continues furiously to find a cure for the novel coronavirus. It's no mean feat since COVID-19 has only been on the map since the end of 2019. But just because a vaccine could be available, does that mean that everybody around the world would take the vaccine? Could it be made mandatory by government? I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is why. Provinces continue their phased reopening as Canadians emerge from the shadows of their screens and begin to participate in society and the economy. And a vaccine is one of our best options at a return to quote-unquote normal. Normality, as it was before, uh, will not come back full on until we get a vaccine for this. And as you say, that uh, could be a very long way off. A big factor in returning to the normal we remember from before this pandemic is how many people are immune to the disease, also known as herd immunity. One of the least painful ways to build that herd immunity is through vaccines. So once a vaccine is proven effective and is available for widespread use, how much of a population should get it? Those who want to? A minimum effective number? Everyone? Dr. Shannon McDonald is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Alberta. I am not an infectious disease specialist, so I I often get asked to do interviews, which I decline, which are around, you know, the, the immunologic aspects or the vaccine development and things like that. That's not my area. Mine's very much, once we have a vaccine, how do we get it into people's arms and how do we make sure that it's safe? Shannon, let's start with the importance of vaccines and public health. There have been a number of examples in history. My mother has told me about the smallpox vaccine and the impact that had on her childhood. But I'm just wondering if you can speak to the importance of vaccines and why they're needed for public health. Vaccines historically have um, been one of the primary measures of prevention for infectious diseases. They're one of the most cost-effective approaches. They're um, an opportunity to prevent disease rather than waiting until somebody becomes ill and then having to treat the disease, which is not only cost-effective, but also as an individual being affected, of course, you'd rather not become sick in the first place than um, risk injury or death or um, you know, have less my on a more minor side, you know, having to miss work or stay home with your child or things like that. So huge impact. Um, a lot of people today haven't seen the impacts of things like you've, you've mentioned. Um, even so polio, which would have been around in the, in the thirties, um, forties and whatnot until the vaccine came in. Um, my mother would have seen polio, but parents today haven't seen polio. So those ones are hard to see, but there's other diseases like Haemophilus influenza B, which, um, which killed children 30 years ago. Um, and now we have a vaccine against that. So they're a fabulous invention. Okay, so let's take a quick look back at polio and the polio vaccine. Poliomyelitis is an infectious disease caused by a virus. It could strike anyone, but children under five were most at risk. It was known as infantile paralysis, or the crippler, because the virus permanently damaged nerve cells that controlled muscles like those in the legs. The first Canadian outbreak of polio was in Hamilton in 1910, when a little girl was taken to hospital with what was thought to be rabies. Public health measures like quarantining the sick, closing schools and movie theaters, 
were tried but were unsuccessful in preventing the spread of the disease. The first iron lung was brought to the hospital for sick children in Toronto from Boston. The barrel-shaped device helped patients breathe when polio attacked the muscles that made them breathe. Now, one of the most iconic images from the polio pandemic in the early 50s was rows of iron lungs with the tiny heads of children sticking out of the end. Mirrors hung above them so they could see who was talking to them. And another image, survivor children in leg braces with crutches. Now, according to the Canadian Public Health Association, it's estimated that 11,000 Canadians were left paralyzed by polio between 1949 and 1954. It was the most serious national epidemic since the 1918 influenza pandemic. Well, that is until now. A vaccine was introduced in 1955. The Salk vaccine and the Sabin oral vaccine in 1962 eventually helped bring the disease under control in the early 70s. Canada was eventually certified polio-free in 1994. No more infantile paralysis, no more need for iron lungs. And babies are now routinely vaccinated for polio at 2, 4, and 18 months of age with a childhood booster. Okay, end side note slash history lesson. Back to Shannon McDonald and vaccines. Okay, so we're currently going through an international pandemic. There is no vaccine for it yet, and there are still questions on whether or not a vaccine will even be produced for the novel coronavirus. But assuming that there is one, and assuming that it will be made widely available, I wonder if it then stands reason that it would be as useful as past vaccines. Yeah, so it's it's hard to know until, you know, we've, we've finished the testing phases. But as you mentioned, there's a number of vaccines in development. Um, quite a few vaccines in development at different stages and, you know, fingers crossed, you know, we'll have something available in the coming year. Um, and, and then we'll have to decide, you know, who, who gets a vaccine and um, which vaccine we're going to use and are we going to use more than one vaccine in the population. Um, but yeah, it could, it's the game changer, right? It's what we're all sitting at home waiting with our kids homeschooling and working from home, we're all waiting for a vaccine to get through all the safety and effectiveness testing um, so we can get out there and, and get on with our lives. In terms of the, the effectiveness, I mean, that's yet to be seen, right? We don't know. Um, when we talk about childhood vaccines, we have impressively effective vaccines that, you know, protect, in some cases, 95% of the people respond positively to things like the measles vaccine and you've got the vaccine and you're protected. On the other hand, you've got things like some of the influenza vaccines that we've had in previous years where the effectiveness ranges, um, you know, as low as, you know, 20% up to, you know, up into the 50s, 60% effective. So we're not quite sure what, we, what we're going to have at the end of the day. You mentioned the measles vaccine. One stat I found from the WHO is that a population should have between 93 and 95% immunity in order to prevent outbreaks of the measles. Now, my understanding is that's because measles can spread so quickly. It's got a high rate of reproduction. I'm wondering if you can explain why there's a difference between how many people get vaccines for the measles and yet the flu vaccine, I think 60, 70% is the range that they want to have for the flu vaccine. Why is there such a discrepancy in goals of having that amount of the population vaccinated? Yeah, so different vaccines, we have different target levels, we call them target levels for vaccine coverage. And as you quite accurately um, 
described, a lot of that has to do with how contagious the disease is. So um, we talk, scientists will talk about something called Rho, which is the reproductive, or not the, sorry, let me rephrase that. Scientists will talk about something called Rho, which is basically how many people will get infected when a contagious person is in contact with them. And um, in the case of measles, measles is highly contagious. So, um, you know, you walk into a room an hour after somebody with measles has left and you're probably going to get measles. Um, with things like influenza, it is not as contagious um, as measles. Um, but from what we've seen so far of COVID, it is more contagious than influenza. So it's more contagious than influenza, not as contagious as measles. So, um, so it's hard to know what the target rate is going to be. Um, it, it partly depends on the effectiveness of the vaccine, right? So if you have a vaccine that is 100% effective, you could conceivably say, oh, we only need to vaccinate 70% of people and the disease won't be able to spread. But if the vaccine is only 60% effective, you have to vaccinate more people in order to prevent the spread. And we recognize that we're never going to vaccinate everybody in the population. And in some cases, there's people who cannot be vaccinated for various health reasons. Um, but the goal is to get a high enough coverage that we achieve what some people refer to as herd immunity, or um, I like the phrase community Im immunity. Community immunity makes us sound a little bit less like a, a herd of cows. Um, and, and in that way, we have vaccinated enough people that we've prevented the transmission of the disease in the community, and we're protecting those vulnerable individuals who are unable to be vaccinated for various medical reasons. In an ideal world, anyone who can be medically vaccinated should be vaccinated. But are there certain things that could prevent that from happening? And can we reach everybody if everyone were willing to take it? So in terms of whether or not we should vaccinate everybody who can be vaccinated, at the individual level, obviously, if you vaccinate everybody, everybody's protected. At the population level, um, you don't have to vaccinate everybody. You need to vaccinate enough people that you prevent the spread of infection. And so we sort of accept that we're never going to reach everybody. And um, economics, come in, economics come into play as well here. Um, we don't know how expensive this vaccine is going to be. Um, we've financially, you know, Canada has taken a massive hit in terms of finances. So there may be a decision that needs to be made that there are certain populations we're going to prioritize to, to vaccinate and um, other populations that maybe won't be eligible for the vaccine. So I wonder if you can speak to some of the challenges to getting a population to take a new vaccine like this. I mean, it seems to me that right now, if, say, a vaccine were to come available in the next three months, I know it's not going to happen, but let's say it does. If we're still in this pandemic mentality where we just want to have everything relieved, most people would probably line up for the vaccine, like in 55 when the polio vaccine became available. However, if after an amount of time, that sense of maybe not panic, but heightened awareness goes away and things get back to closer to a normal, what are the barriers to the uptake of a new vaccine, which this COVID-19 vaccine would be? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? Is are people going to accept the vaccine? as you rightly said, in a pandemic situation, when people's lives have essentially been put on 
hold, there may be great buy-in. People might be lining up around the block like they did with the polio vaccine to say, I, I want to be able to send my kids to school into the swimming pool again. And I, I anticipate um, there'll be a lot of that. But at the same time, there's also going to be probably some questions about how rapidly the vaccine was developed and um, what the safety protocols have been in terms of ensuring the vaccine is safe. And even though this process is happening quickly, there are still very stringent criteria for clinical trials and for licensing before a vaccine can be developed. So I just want to take the opportunity to, you know, make the point that um, even though everybody's in a rush to get this done, it will be done in a way that we know it's, it's safe to do. So, you know, we may get this initial rush of get me the vaccine, and we may actually struggle with the fact that we don't have enough vaccine for all the people who want the vaccine. And then, you know, as, as people start getting vaccinated and the initial panic, if you want to call it, dies down. Exactly. You might actually get the then the opposite thing of people going, oh, well, enough people are vaccinated that I can get on with my life. Why should I expose myself to a vaccine? And, you know, we've seen that with other, with other vaccines. There is, although um, the number of people who refuse routine childhood vaccines is actually quite small. It's only about two to five percent of people. We knew a proportion of that. We know that a proportion of that are are people who figure, why should I expose my child to that if the vast majority of people are vaccinated and they're never going to get exposed to this disease? So trying to figure out the right messaging for the public is going to be a, a huge challenge. And I know both the government of Canada and Alberta are, are working on that, trying to figure out um, their scientists that, you know, um, are undertaking studies to understand people's, the psychology, the sociology of the decision-making that um, people are going to be going through and then what the best way is to manage the initial high demand possibly and then um, how to keep encouraging people. So with this novel coronavirus, we've seen basically the entire world's economy shut down and billions of people's lives put on hold. Is there a scenario in which a hypothetical vaccine for the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, could be made mandatory? And what do you think that scenario could be, given what we've seen already? It's an excellent question, and you certainly see um, articles from all over the world about people being concerned about that. Am I going to be forced to take this vaccine? I'll just speak to it from the Canadian perspective, because that's where we are. I... I mean, at, currently, there is no province in Canada that actually has a mandatory vaccination requirement in the general public. So even in provinces like Ontario, where the School Pupils Act say kids should be vaccinated before they attend school, there is the option for people to have philosophical exemptions, as well as, of course, medical exemptions um, to get vaccinated. So although we call those quote unquote mandatory programs, they're, not, they're not mandatory. You have the option to opt out. In Alberta, we haven't even gone to that extent. Uh, you know, Alberta... Um, the health department has very much recognized that all Albertans want to have that choice of whether to vaccinate or not. So I can't foresee a scenario where the general public would require vaccination, that it would be mandatory. Um, now, having said that, I, it's, 
it's possible that certain organizations may require people who are part of their organization to be vaccinated. So for instance, you know, we've, we've got some hospitals and um, health regions in Canada where influenza vaccine is required for healthcare providers because they are dealing with a vulnerable population day in, day out in a really high risk scenario. And ethically, they can't be transmitting infection to those people. So it's possible that that might be a scenario. There could be other organizations that, um, who knows, maybe the airlines, maybe they'll require that their employees have to be vaccinated. Um, but I, I don't see any scenario where the federal or provincial government would mandate vaccination. I can't foresee the future, but it, based on, on what we have done in the past, I can't see that happening. So it might be a case where the government doesn't need to mandate it. They just make it available and even probably for free. And people will just line up and do it on their own accord. We look at things like the influenza vaccine and um, the trick of to get high, high coverage with influenza vaccine has has and we haven't quite done it yet, <laughs> but making it as convenient as possible for people to access it. I mean, there's a lot of airplay given to what we call vaccine hesitancy, you know, people who are afraid of vaccines or think they're unsafe or think they're, you know, ineffective. But in fact, the largest driver of low vaccine uptake is the convenience factor. So if you can make it as easy as possible for people to get. So in Alberta, we've made it possible for pharmacists to vaccinate anybody over the age of five. And our vaccination rates um, are heading in the right direction, not where they need to be. Um, but you know, in, in hospitals, they go unit to unit to deliver the vaccine to, to physicians and nurses. And certainly we could do better. And certainly there is some um, hesitancy among people to get the vaccine. But step number one is making it as easy as possible to do it. So a hypothetical question for you. If we go off Alberta's previous flu vaccination rate, I think it's somewhere in the 60s, low 50s. 31% last wow. year. <laughs> wow. Okay. So great example. Healthcare, healthcare <laughs> providers were double that. 62% in AHS employees. Okay. So that's a great example. 30% of Alberta's population gets a flu vaccine. Let's say we need 80% for community immunity of a virus like the coronavirus. Could the government step in and mandate that people get vaccinations for the coronavirus at that point? Again, hypothetical question. We often use influenza as the comparison because it's the next best thing we have to compare to. But I think in some ways it's not a great comparison because if you think of the so of the reasons people give for not getting vaccinated for influenza, like I said, some of it is convenience. But the other things are um, they think that they're not at risk. So I'm healthy. I don't have any chronic health issues. Um, you know, I take care of myself. I have a good diet and whatnot. That is probably the most common reason you hear people say they didn't get the influenza vaccine. Um, we've seen from COVID that, yes, those vulnerable people are the ones more likely to have a bad outcome, but there have been healthy young adults who have had horrendous outcomes from COVID. And I think that will make a huge impact on vaccine coverage rates um, as compared to influenza. And honestly, I think that the fact that people want to get back to their everyday lives. Like, it sounds crazy to say people won't be motivated for fear of getting ill, but they will be motivated because they want to 
play basketball with their friends again. But it's, it's true. Like people are not necessarily rational about it. There's, there's a very emotional part of our decision-making where we make decisions without actually weighing the benefits and risks. We make decisions because it feels right or you just, you, you're driven by something else. And the something else could be, I want my kids to go back to school. I want to get back to my job and I want to start playing tennis on Tuesday nights again. So I think we are going to do a lot better than we have been doing with influenza. Mm. The other thing that is probably going to drive that is the fact that um, un unusual risks scare people more than predictable risks. So influenza we see every year, we kind of know what it looks like, we kind of know who does well and who doesn't do well. Um, and so we kind of go, oh, pshaw, I don't need that. But COVID came out of the blue to most of us, not to the scientists who've been predicting it up for, for years, but for most of us, it came out of the blue and it's just turned our lives upside down. And that is a hugely motivating factor. So I think our coverage rates for COVID, if everybody has the opportunity to get vaccinated, I think our coverage rates will be much better than they have been with influenza. So Shannon, do you think that this coronavirus will change the way the vaccines are looked at in society in general? Well, that is a really good question. Um, my team is actually hoping to do a study on that. We're waiting to find out if we receive the funding to do so. Um, we're really interested to know whether or not people who previously questioned vaccines or just thought they weren't worth the time and effort um, will change their minds about this. Um, you know, the fact that we're seeing, you know, lots of people are seeing acquaintances or friends or family who have been impacted by this, whether that will motivate people in a way that um, hasn't happened before, where they haven't seen polio and they haven't seen measles and, and whatnot. So it's, it's hard to predict. As of May 27th, the World Health Organization reported that 10 possible vaccines for COVID-19 have begun testing in humans. 115 more possible vaccines are being developed to reach the stage of clinical trials. And in mid-May, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced Dalhousie University has been approved by Health Canada to participate in that human testing, which the Halifax researchers hopes to begin in the coming weeks. Now, researchers in Ontario, Quebec, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta and BC are also working on possible vaccine for the virus. It's all in an effort to safely shrink the vaccine development timeline from what can be nearly a decade to a year or two. In Ontario and New Brunswick, proof of vaccination is required for children under 18 to attend public schools unless there's a medical or ideological exception. Will a vaccine for COVID-19 be made mandatory nationwide? Well, the Prime Minister said this at the end of April. As to what sort of uh, uh, vaccination protocols uh, will be in place, uh, we still have uh, uh, a fair bit of time to reflect on that in order to get it right. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy, at globalnews.ca, and on Twitter, at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay happy. We'll see you soon.